Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Is the sweetheart you married the husband you expected him to be? Has the war created new problems for you in your marriage? To answer these and other personal problems brought in by your friends and neighbors, Arad presents John J. Anthony, founder of the famed Marital Relations Institute, in a brand new program of daily sessions of kindly and helpful advice. Just as Mr. Anthony, by examples in this studio, is helping thousands of men and women solve their personal problems, Arad, too, is helping thousands to solve the important personal problem of underarm perspiration. Arad helps you avoid perspiration damage to clothes and safeguards friendships. Use Arad every day. It helps stop perspiration safely, and at the same time, Arid is a most effective deodorant. Welcome to the underworld. I love America. It's been my home all my life. Ladies and gentlemen, the very word secrecy is repugnant in a free and open society. And we are, as a people, inherently and historically opposed to secret societies, to secret oaths, and a secret proceedings. In America, they want you and they track you every move. They're even putting poison in your food. In America, the people are too blind to see the truth. But it's too late, and there's nothing we can do. In America, just watch your favorite show and watch the news. So they can pick up when you with your news. In America, obey the law, support the truth. And just get back, cause there's nothing we can do. I love America. It's been my home all my life. If you don't know the past, you're only doomed to repeat it. Welcome to Public Access America. This is your history. This is your country. This is America. Join us in listening to some of history's America's best speeches. Created by Jarcodes Productions. Go back in time with us right now on Public Access America. Don't leave me. Jimmy, please don't leave your bestie. Jimmy, you ain't gonna leave me, are you? Woman, I'll be gone before the evening sun goes down. Jimmy, don't I give you everything you say you want? What have I got? I give you clothes. I give you suits. Suits? Yes. Singular, baby, not plural. One suit, that's all, one suit. Don't leave me, Jimmy. Oh, woman, get out of my face. Bessie Smith made only one movie. This brief film made in New York by Dudley Murphy. Yet it was a real first in other ways, too. It brought together the blues of W.C. Handy and the music of low-down black life with added choral material by J. Rosemond Johnson a central figure in the famous Harlem Renaissance and composer of Lift Every Voice and Sing, known as the Negro National Anthem.
Johnson's and Handy's contribution to a 1929 movie, even this brief short, was an accomplishment of sorts. It brought black intellectuals to a popular art form in a way not possible in silent film. might even spot one of Harlem's literary elite among the extras. But Bessie Smith's movie that ended the decade of the Harlem Renaissance, along with these experimental films by Lee De Forest that began it, were among the few sound films of the era. This meant that the high renaissance of black culture in America had no medium to record or express some of the richest qualities of black life, its dance, its blues, and its jazz. Maybe this explains why blacks were not devoted movie fans. Out of thousands of American movie houses, only a few hundred segregated houses served blacks. Here and there in big cities, a tiny handful of blacks went to downtown theaters but movies always seem to be made for somebody else. In the South, this point was made bluntly at the entrance to every small-town theater with its colored balcony and its outdoor shadowy around-the-corner entry. In the North, the point was made on the screen itself. From earliest times in the 1890s up through the golden age of Hollywood in the 1920s, blacks were the butt of movies rather than the centers of the action. For years, they appeared only as blackened up white actors. They had rhythm and they could dance. Lots of funny things happened to them. And they mourned their masters rather than their fellow slaves. It's easy to see why the leading spirits of the Harlem Renaissance shared a contempt for movies. But occasionally, they tried to change them. James Weldon Johnson, Diplomat, author, songwriter, and editor remembered his own attempt. I wrote a half dozen short scenarios and promptly sold three of them. We saw the exhibition of the first picture and were so disappointed in it that we were actually ashamed to see the others. Johnson's films are lost, but its makers, a Jacksonville studio in Johnson's hometown, must have handled his idea in the same spirit as this Vitagraph film also shot in Florida. Even Oscar Michaud, dean of race movie makers, failed to please black authors. Charles Waddell Chestnut, distinguished author of The House Behind the Cedars, for example, was disappointed in Michaud's movie of his book. Langston Hughes, the most popularly known of the Harlem poets, enjoyed a lifelong infatuation with movies, but at the end of the twenties, his feelings must have reached low ebb. Hughes went to Russia as a member of a black company to make a movie about racial conditions in America. But even in Russia, which proclaimed an official racial equality, he felt betrayed by Stalin who canceled the project as part of a deal to gain diplomatic recognition by the United States government. Bill Chase's cartoon in the Amsterdam News expressed Harlem's rage at yet another betrayal at the hands of movie makers. But despite the distance kept by the Harlem intellectuals, Black filmmakers spent the decade challenging the monopoly of racist movies on the nation's screens. 
1918, they took on The Birth of a Nation, often thought of as both the greatest movie ever made and the single meanest depiction of blacks ever filmed. Emmett J. Scott and Booker T. Washington of Tuskegee Institute began a challenge to Griffith's film in Tampa, Florida, which they titled The Birth of a Race. Although not the first movie project of a black company, it was the first to have a big city premiere. Even though Booker T. Washington, the central black leader of the day, died in the midst of the project and the film lost much of its black ownership and militant spirit, at least some of its message survived the final cut. Despite its weaknesses and a disappointing showing at the box office, the closing World War I sequence of The Birth of a Race put on the screen a real first, the first visual argument for racial integration ever to appear on an American screen. But if The Birth of a Race failed to reach its intended nationwide audience, it did inspire the founding of the first black company that averaged more than one production per year, the Lincoln Motion Picture Company of Los Angeles. Lincoln's movies ranged over a broad expanse of heroic black experiences, from homesteading in the law of nature, to soldiering on the frontier in the ranks of the all-black buffalo soldiers, to life in the fast lane traveled by black high achievers. This fragment, in its deteriorated state, is all we have of their social drama by right of birth. Its hero is a high-powered lawyer played by Clarence Brooks, who saves the land and birthright of a woman of a black and Indian heritage. Hollywood would not dare tackle such a story of black social power, at least not for another half century. Of all the black filmmakers of the age of the Harlem Renaissance, we know the most about Oscar Michaud. His works survive in greater numbers than those of any other black filmmaker. Michaud took up issues of racial identity that not only concerned his audiences, but had animated the Harlem poets and Alain Locke in his book, The New Negro. At least one part of this new Negro grew out of the tension between rural and urban black life, a theme Michaud took up in two versions of his autobiography, The Homesteader, a now lost film of 1918, and The Exile, a 1931 film that we see here. Like many blacks in his audiences, Michaud was fascinated with the neither fish nor fowl feelings of recent migrants from southern farms to northern cities and the clash between the values down home and those in the big city. I saw some colored people when we passed through Chicago on our way out here, and many were quite light. Why, some of them were as, as light as, as my mother. In Michaud's movies, Parallel to his city versus country theme runs another deeper theme that concerned Michaud and perhaps his black audience that was struggling with its new identity imposed by life in the city. That of color cast within black circles that stung almost as sharply as the racism imposed by historic forces outside the race. Baptiste, Michaud's hero to whom he gave a name as French as his own, chooses to abandon his beloved homestead and return to the city rather than marry across racial lines. In a fashion that became his trademark, Michaud solved the problem of black identity a little too neatly by having his fiancée discover a convenient Ethiopian mother in her past. I married her and we lived happily until she died. God rest her soul. And now you know the truth. In a career that turned out almost a movie per year, 
no topic seemed beyond Michaud's ambition. Lynching, corrupt preachers, bootleggers, and always done with a personal style that sometimes touched nerves and offended black sensibilities. Clearly, by the end of the silent film era, and by the end of the Harlem Renaissance, Michaud's sheer volume of accomplishment should have placed him in the ranks of Harlem's literary lights. Michaud was not alone in turning out black versions of every Hollywood film genre, westerns, gangster movies, fantasies. Nor were all of the movie makers black. Sometimes an occasional white company reached for the black audience. In fact, what Michaud's work was to drawing room and social drama, the white Norman company of Jacksonville was to westerns, adventure, and outdoor drama. Their western, The Bulldogger, took its theme from the actual West, where the black cowboy Bill Pickett invented the rodeo stunt known as bulldogging. Black Gold was an adventure for the company itself. Few Hollywood studios would have risked sending a film unit to the Oklahoma oil fields to make a location shot. In addition to their westerns, Norman attempted a black version of the great national fad of the 1920s, aviation. Never mind that low budgets kept their plane from ever flying. Shaking the plane and tilting the camera upward gave the illusion of flight. Almost. Black filmmaker Richard D. Maurice of Detroit attempted the most difficult of film genres, the fantasy that violates reality, which must remain believable in order to keep our attention. In fact, fantasies were notorious for bringing laughs in the wrong places from black audiences. In the main storyline, a crooked preacher turns a street kid into a criminal. At the climax of the story, we're introduced to Sun Daisy, an exotic, romantic, slightly mysterious man of the streets. In a touching fantasy solution to the social problem of crime in ghetto streets, Sun Daisy vows revenge upon the shady, Fagin-like preacher and repays the bad guy for his lifetime of leading black kids into crime. As in all race movies, its appeal was that it offered a black problem and solved it in black terms. If they avoided any theme or topic, race movie makers agreed it was comedy. Few of them risked playing for the laughs that might remind their fans of the Hollywood stereotypes they were all trying to escape. Occasionally, a white company fronting as or passing as black, such as the Ebony Studio of Chicago, made parodies of white characters such as this typical example that plays upon Conan Doyle's Sherlock Holmes. But generally, the last thing black movie makers needed was to be charged with imitating Hollywood stereotypes. 
so comedy seldom surfaced in race movies. Of all the surviving movies of the jazz age, can it be said that one stood out above all the rest? Many critics think so. Their choice is The Scar of Shame, a social drama in the Hollywood great tradition, a story of lives shattered by social snobbery. Only this time, the story has a race angle that Hollywood would have avoided like the plague. Taking up the two social circles as a struggle between two opposites, the riffraff versus the bourgeoisie, the movie dramatized the desperate ambition of a black composer to rise above environment, contrasted with Louise's failed attempt to climb out of the misery and squalor of another, poorer world near the bottom. Can Louise rise by an act of will from her stepfather's low life and move with her lover to the suburbs? No. Environment drags her down, and Louise, like her black doll, is shattered by the experience. Like dozens of fallen women in scores of soap operas and melodramas, Louise sacrifices herself rather than be a drag on her man's race ambition. The Colored Players Company had hit on a neat combination of drawing room drama and a racial uplift angle, a formula that grew out of their sense of the marketplace, not their race. Their message was one that the black middle class had taught its children for years. Louise's tragedy reinforced the audience's faith in the uplifting value of ambition, work, and sacrifice. And yet, despite the merits of the scar of shame, many blacks still avoided race movies, some of them out of religious conviction, some to avoid yet another form of segregation, and still others as a preference for high-budget Hollywood movies rather than low-budget race movies. And so the silent era of race movies ended as it had begun, lacking the respect of the Harlem intellectuals and still in search of a popular audience. A Baltimore Afro-American editorial pleaded with its readers for forbearance and tolerance. The worst enemy of the race producer is the movie fan himself. Colored Americans are governed by standards set by white producers. The cinema game within the race is within its infancy and it is within the power of every race fan to crush it in the cradle. To bear with such men as Oscar Michaud and other pioneers today means better and bigger race pictures tomorrow. Make it your slogan to see these pictures, even if it hurts. Why did race movies need to struggle so desperately for approval? Perhaps it was merely the silence. So much of black popular culture involved percussion, resonance, and tempo and not merely the moving image. With the coming of sound, James Roland Johnson himself changed his mind about movies. Remember, as a young man, he had been burned by an encounter with movie makers. But in 1929, he wrote to Bill Foster, who in 1912, as far as we know, was the first black man ever to make a movie. I do not see how they are going to keep the Negro from achieving a permanent place in the movie world so long as they have talkies. I myself have noticed that their voices record much better than white voices. Duke Ellington's film of 1935, Symphony in Black, was one of dozens of short Hollywood films done as though to tinker with ways of introducing blacks to the screen in some inoffensive way that would attract blacks and please whites. The combination of black cultural idiom and European symphonic form provided a medium of expression that the Harlem Wits would have loved. But in their day, silent race movies had done for the film medium 
with the Harlem Renaissance had done for the arts, signaled and celebrated the arrival of black urban art forms that the black critic Theophilus Lewis called indigenous drama. Therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H E L P. 